right, folks, I think we're ready. I know I'm ready to rock and roll. It's great to see you all. This is the Jewish Course of Why. This is lesson number five. I am going to take an opportunity to mute everybody super quickly. Um, remember, if you have a question related to the class discussion point, feel free to unmute, jump in, enter into the chat, you know, write something in the chat box. Let's be, let's have an interaction and let's rock and roll. So there's a little girl who comes home from school one day. You know, this is back in the day when people went to school. So a little girl um, comes home from school one day and she tells her mother that she was, she was punished for something that she didn't do. So the mother says, what, 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 what was it? So the girl says, my homework. Thank you, Jerry. All right. Good. Um, I'm excited to explore more why questions with you. We have another upwards of nine questions to explore. Let's see how many we get through tonight. The goal is to get through as many as possible. We have a wide range. If you saw my email, there's a wide range of topics to explore. Some uh, related to Jewish law, some related to Jewish culture and food and dress, um, you know, the clothing and uh, related to Jewish identity as well. So we have a lot to talk about. Let's jump right in. So let me be the first one to tell you. I'm kidding, I'm not the first one to tell you, but the Jewish holidays are approaching. We're getting close to Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. I hope you got your apples and your honeys, your honey, all ready to go because the Jewish New Year is approaching. And you might be wondering, oh my gosh, the holidays already? Isn't it early? Or maybe, maybe you'll wonder the holidays, isn't it late? So here's the truth about Jews. You ready? The holidays, to a Jew, the holidays are never on time. You never heard a Jew say, Passover this year, right on time. Never in the history of the Jewish people did you hear that statement. It's always, it's early this year. Isn't it, aren't the holidays early? It's late. Oh, it's late. It's never on time. But take my word for it. Never on time. So the question is, and that's a part of, you know, that's part of us liking to kvetch, which is, I don't want to take that away from anybody. It's our national pastime. We, we know it. We love it. But what's the deal with the holidays? The reason why it feels like the holidays are never a set time is because, get this, on the Gregorian calendar, on the secular calendar, there is no set date, obviously, for the Jewish holidays because they're set on the Jewish calendar. So let's understand why the Jewish holidays are always moving around. To understand that, we need to understand a little bit of the, about the mechanics of the Jewish calendar. So now we're going to segue into a discussion about time itself and how we mark time. So there are two primary systems for counting time. You can count by the solar cycle, the cycle of the sun, or you can go by the lunar cycle, the cycle of the moon. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to share my, actually I'm going to put up a whiteboard so that I can, uh, so that I can draw some things for you. Okay, here we go. Can somebody tell me, please unmute yourself and answer this, the following question. A solar year, the solar annual cycle, how many days is it in a solar year? How many days? Give me the total number. 365. I need the precise number. 365 and? Some change. A quarter. Good. 
Okay, that looks like an eyeball to me, but it's meant to be a sun. I'm sorry, I'm like drawing on my computer, so it's not gonna be exact. Okay, so the solar year is 365 and 0.25. Good, that is how many days it takes for the solar cycle. Now, what about the moon? Let's talk about the moon for a moment. Let's get a different color. We're gonna make this fancy schmancy. The moon, can I draw a moon effectively? I'm gonna try. That looks like a chauffeur or a mask. My apologies, it is, it is what it is. It is what it is. The lunar cycle, unmute yourself if you can tell me. The lunar, the cycle of the moon. So the sun, the solar cycle takes 365 and a quarter for the whole shebang. A lunar cycle, one lunar cycle waxing and waning. How many days does it take? Unmute yourself if you know the answer. 28. A little bit more. 29 and a half. 20, excellent. 29.5, okay, 29.5. All right, we're about to get into the math, folks. This was the easy part. <laughs> this was the easy part. Now, again, a solar cycle, 365 and a quarter. A lunar cycle, again, or a face mask cycle, 29 and a half days. So, get ready for this. The solar cycle is good to measure a year. Correct? This is good for, let me get the color again. This right here is great to measure a year. Why do I say that? Again, apologies about the handwriting. I'm literally writing with my finger on a screen that's moving. So my apologies. This is great for a year. Why? Because we know a year is 365 days. That's how this, this cycle calendar works. But you know what it's not good for? Unmute yourself if you can tell me what this solar system is not good for. Help me out here. What's it not good for? What's it not good to tell us regarding? I don't think my question is clear, but I'll give you the answer anyway. Okay, it's not good at determining the length, the amount of days of a month. Correct? There's no indication in the solar cycle, there's no indication how long a month should be. So how do we do it in the Gregorian calendar, in the secular calendar? How do we, what do we do with the 365 and a quarter? Someone tell me. I mean, we all should know this. What, what do we do with this, with this larger number in orange? Help me out. 30 days, have September, April, June, and November, all the rest of 31. <laughs> all right, well, hold on. But what do we do? What do we actually do? We take 365. 365, I have a calculator opened up in front of me. 365 and a quarter divided by 12. And that equals... Yes, exactly. That equals 30.4375. So it equals about 30. I'm sorry, I'm drawing down here now. Whatever, I'm just using some space. 30.4 days. So if you do, again, 12 months. 12 months, the average, the average length of days per month is 30.4. Approximately. So what do we do instead? We have some months that are 30 some months that are 31, and we kind of balance that out. Some are 30, some are 31, and, and, and that's how we roll. Now, I'll ask you a question, another question. If the solar cycle is 365 days, so why do we have 12 months? Where did the tw number 12 come from? Why 12? Why not 10 months of 36 and a half days? Why not uh, 20 months 
of whatever 365.25 divided by 20 is. Why 12? At 12 is a little bit arbitrary, but nonetheless, that's the way it has evolved. We have 12 months, uh, so we take the, the larger total of 365 divided by 12, and that's the number that you get, 30.4. Okay, fantastic. Now, let me undo some of this math so that we can get back to the original um, the original demarcations here. Now, let's get back to the, to, the, to the lunar cycle. Okay, here we go. The lunar cycle, we said, is 29 and a half days. Now, what I'm going to give you two options. Months or years. What is this lunar cycle good for? Months or years? It's an easy question. This is called a softball question. Help me out. This number right here, 29.5. What is 29.5 good for? Year, days, years, 29 and a half days. Is that good for years or good for months? Months. Months. The lunar cycle, the lunar cycle of 29 and a half days, right? So that's each month. In the lunar cycle, the lunar calendar, 29 and a half days is exactly the amount of time for each month. So some months will have 29 days, some months will have 30 days. So now you take 29 and a half, right? It does, but it doesn't work. It doesn't tell us much about a year. How long is a year? We don't know. All we know is a lunar cycle is 29 and a half days. You do 29 and a half times 12, okay? We do the math, and it comes out to, so that times 12 equals 354 days. So 12 months of 29 and a half day cycles times 12 equals 354. The lunar year is 350, sorry, my four is wonky, 354 days. The solar year is 365 and a quarter days. There is a discrepancy. I want to share with you though, before we get to reconcile the, the, the discrepancy, I wanna share with you that the Gregorian calendar, the calendar that we use here in the United States of America, not the Jewish calendar, the secular calendar, goes pretty much completely by this solar count. Okay, hold on one second. Um, here we go. It goes completely by this solar count. 365 and a quarter days is the year. You divide it by 12, you have 30.4 days, so some months have 30, some months have 31, we have the song or the rhyme, whatever it is, to, to remind us which one. We have the knuckle system. Remember the knuckles or something? Yes, that whole thing. All right, different, different techniques to remember which months are which. Doesn't matter. The point is that this is the, the annual cycle. So a, a solar year on an hour calendar is gonna rotate. January 1st to January 1st is gonna be pretty much 365-ish days, give or take. You know, you gotta make up that 0.25 somewhere, which you know, we have a leap year, we have an extra day in February, fine. Wonder, bottom line is, it's 365 days is the year. When it comes to the lunar calendar, right? So for example, the, um, the Muslims go by a lunar cycle. So the lunar, the lunar calendar, you have 29 and a half days times 12 is 354. And essentially you have a year 12 months of 29 and a half days ends up 354 days later. Which is why, for example, the holiday of Ramadan, which is one of the 
holy Islamic holidays, that's why it comes up every year at a different time of year. It comes up in a different season. Why? Because one year, it's, let's, I'm just going to give a random example. Let's say one year, Ramadan falls out on January 1st. Well, guess what? The next year it's going to fall out. What's 365 minus 354? 11. There's an 11-day discrepancy between this and this, between these guys right here, 11 days. So every year, your, your lunar calendar is slipping 11 days behind. So again, I just be very clear here. If January 1st, whatever that day is, if that is for the, the Islamic holiday of Ramadan, that means that 354 days later, which would be this, the next year, December, um, December 19th, right, of the next year, would be Ramadan. And then it would be go back 11 days and then 11 days and 11 days. So every year it's slipping back 11 days, which is why that Islamic holiday keeps on moving around the seasons. The unique thing about the Jewish calendar is that although we typically say that the Jewish calendar follows the lunar cycle, that's not actually true. It follows both. The months go by the lunar cycle, the, year goes, the years go by the solar cycle. We reconcile the two, and that's where the Jewish leap year comes in. So again, I just want to draw something, a timeline, to be very clear here. Okay? I, I'm making an orange point and a line and then another point, and that represents the solar year. Ready? The lunar year, if it starts at the same point, it's going to extend and it's going to stop a little bit before precisely 11 days before the solar year. If you keep on doing that, keep on rotating year after year, it gets less and less and less. Not less 11 days, but 11 becomes 22 days less, becomes 33 days less, becomes 44 days left, less, and it keeps on going. The Jewish calendar famously reconciles both models. The months, to be very clear, the Jewish months follow the lunar cycle, which is 29 and a half days. However, the years are reconciled with the solar calendar. And the reason is because the Torah tells us that the holidays, the Jewish holidays, and this gets back to our conversation about holidays, have to fall out in very specific seasons. For example, the holiday of Sukkot, which is coming up after Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the holiday of Sukkot has to fall out in the fall. And the holiday of Passover has to fall out in the spring. It's called Chag HaAviv. It's the, it's, or, um, yeah, it's, the, it's, it's the festival of the spring. Passover must fall out in the spring. That's when the original Exodus was. That's when we have to continue observing it every single year. So the way the Jewish calendar works is that, yes, you have 12 months of 29 and a half days, which is 11 days short of the solar month, which is going to mess up the seasons. But every few years, you add another full month to push the, the, the Jewish calendar once again, forward to reconcile it with the secular calendar. I hope this made sense. It's a bit of a mathematical conversation, um, but I think it's important to explore. What I'm going to do now is share with you uh, some texts that we're going to look, we're going to read inside. Now that I showed you the whiteboard, let's get to some text inside. Okay, like I said before, we have nine questions. They're listed here. I sent you the PDF um, by email, but let's look at Maimonides. Here we go. Always good to start with Rambam. He will get us on the right track. Text one, I'm going to read. The months of the year the Jew, the, in the Jewish calendar are lunar months. As it says in Numbers, the burnt offering of the month when it is renewed. 
monthly renewal is relevant to the lunar cycle. Again, this cannot refer to the solar cycle, Maimonides says, because it, it, the solar cycle doesn't have a renewal every month. It's only the lunar cycle where the, where the moon waxes and wanes every month that you, have a lunar, that you have a month of renewal. Whereas in the secular system, the renewal happens once a year and the months are, frankly, arbitrary, 12, 12 divisions of that longer segment. It also says in Exodus, Maimonides continues, this month shall be for you the first of months about which our sages commented that God showed Moses in a vision of prophecy an image of the moon and told him, when you see the moon like this, when it first emerges from after waning and disappearing completely, or at least our appearances, it disappears. When you see the moon like this, the first emergence of the moon, once again, declared a new month, that is Rosh Chodesh. Now, what this means for us is the Jewish calendar, the months of the Jewish calendar, go by the lunar cycle. Let's continue, though, because we're not done yet. Text number two. Take a look at the Medrash. No, text number three. Sorry, this is where we need the solar reconciliation. This is from Deuteronomy. The verse says, Keep the month of spring. Shamar et chodesh aviv. Keep the month of spring and make the Passover offering to God. Again, Passover must be in the spring. For in the month of spring, God brought you out of Egypt at night. This is what I referenced before. Um, and what I referenced before is this text, text number three, which comes from Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse number one. Passover must fall out in the spring. Therefore, we have to do something to the calendar to reconcile the lunar and the solar. And the way we do that is by adding a leap year. Okay, let me check in before we get to some deeper um, secrets and, and life lessons from this idea. I'm going to stop sharing for a moment and take questions. Any questions on the calendar conversation? It's a little bit technical, but, I, but ask away because now is your chance to fully understand it. But please ask. Go ahead. Rabbi, is the leap year just uh, for the lunar calendar? Or for the, uh, the Jewish calendar is not a lunar calendar. That's the misconception that I want to blow up tonight. The, the Jewish calendar is not exclusively a lunar system. It's lunar plus solar. It's a hybrid. Everyone's into hybrids now. Oh, a hybrid vehicle, Gewaldic. Every, right? It's a hybrid calendar. So what I'm saying is the Christian calendar is solar. The, Mus the, 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 the Muslim calendar is lunar, and the Jewish calendar is a hybrid. The months go by the, the moon, but the years are reconciled with the sun. Does that make sense, what I just said? Yeah. So you go 12 months times, you do 12 lunar months, but then when there's, a, when there's enough of a gap, we throw in an extra month. We throw in an extra month, and that becomes part of the Jewish calendar. One more month. We don't have a leap year. It's not just one day. Are you kidding me? A leap year, one day? <laughs> Forget about it. In, Jew in the Jewish calendar, you got another full month. The month of Adar is done twice. Yes, we are efficient with the hybrid calendar. Yes, that makes us way more. Yes, go ahead. Every four years? At, no, no, because remember, every year it's slipping back 11 days. Sorry, not slipping back. Every year, let's say you start here, year one, right? Or point, you know, at, at, at zero, at the point zero, you start here, you know, Jewish date, English date, right? Let's say your birthday, right? You were born on a certain day, not two days. You were born on one day. It has an English date and a Jewish date, okay? The next year, here's your English birthday. Here's your Hebrew birthday, 11 days sooner. 
right? And if you keep on going, it's going to be 22 days and then 33 days, which means you have to have a leap year every, at least every three years, if not sooner. So there's a complex system of about a 17-year cycle with leap years every two or three years. It kind of rotates. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful and exquisite mathematical calendar that's been set uh, thousands of years ago that we're still following. It's, it's precise, 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 and, uh, and, that's what, and that's what we use. Wasn't there a rabbi who said that this is precise calendar that was good for, I don't know. Hill of the Elder. Hillel the Elder. Not Hillel on campus. That's a different rabbi. Kidding. Right, but Hillel the Elder made, the, um, made that calendar. And the calendar is brilliant. It's mathematically sound. It's, I mean, it's perfect. It's a perfect. It's a perfect Jewish calendar. He figured out a system, he, you know, based on everything. And it's, um, yeah, straight up. It's, 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 uh, it, it's, it's mathematically pure. So that's that's and that's how we're we're still working with the calendar. Yes, go ahead. Sorry. So is it good for twenty more years? It's good for as many years as you want. It cannot not be good. It's it's perfect. It's perfectly mathematically accurate. So there's no it 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 can go on till till infinity. Okay. Any other questions regarding this point about the calendars and about the leap year and about the reconciliation? Make sense? Solar system, lunar system, we have the hybrid system. Okay, so what's the message? Really beautiful, beautiful lessons. I want to share with you really essentially a core message. The difference between the sun and the moon in our perception, right? I'm not talking about, you know, uh, astronomically. I'm talking about from our perception. The sun is steady. The moon is surprising. The sun is steady. Every day, sunrise, sunset. Every day is consistent. The moon, are you kidding me? Right, one night it's big, the next night it's small. It's, it's, one night it's not even there. The moon is always constantly in flux. In life, there are two qualities. Consistency and spontaneity. Right, there's consistency. It's good to be consistent, steady. But it's also good to be fresh, new, and exciting. Life requires both. I want to give you four examples of this, how this plays out. Oh, so some have a calendar system that favors consistency, the solar calendar. Some have one that favors newness, right? Something new and exciting. And the Jewish system says, the Jewish calendar says, you have to have both. You have to marry both values together. So here's an example. When it comes to relationships, relationships need to be steady. Right? It, uh, it needs to be steady and stable. At the same time, we have to make sure that our relationships are growing and also exciting. So relationships need both a sun stability quality as well as a new, fresh, exciting moon quality. Let's talk about raising children. We, we wish to wait, raise children that have firm values, that have firm grounding, that have commitments. But at the same time, we want to instill within our children the desire to always challenge the status quo and to always, you know, ask the question, is this really the way it should be? And we want them to create change. That's what we love to see from our children. So we give them values, but we also want them to challenge the status quo. All right, let's talk about Judaism. Third example, commitment to Judaism is a beautiful thing. But at the same time, we're always seeking to question and to learn more. We're always seeking to grow and not be satisfied with what we know or do or think Jewishly, 
but always more. That's why we're all here in this course, right? right? We're literally here in this course, the Jewish course of why, to ask questions or to explore questions and to learn and to grow. So this is a great example of the, the moon, right? The growth at the same time. Commitment. Jewish commitment is good. The final example is having a, is with regards to, to a job, to, to business, to work, to, vo- to a vocation. That is having a stable a sta- stable work, a stable job is important. It's necessary even. Um, it's, it's very important. But at the same time, without growth, without opportunities, a job that's the same day in, day out could become suffocating. Anyway, these are just four examples of, of many where in life we see the value of both values that might appear to be competing values. But if you look a little, a little bit deeper, there's a way to reconcile them both, which is essentially what the Jewish calendar does. And by doing so, it reminds us that we need steadiness, but we also need excitement um, in our lives. Make sense? Yes? All right. Good. Let's keep on rolling. Let's keep it with the positive, happy conversations. Okay, let's talk about the word, the phrase mazel tov. Can somebody tell me? Now, I think I mentioned this recently um, in a course that we did not too long ago, but can somebody tell me what the literal translation of the phrase mazal tov means? Mazal tov. Help me out. Unmute yourself and mazal tov me. Good luck. Good. Okay. Okay. So tov is good. The second word tov is good. Excellent. But what does mazal mean? Does it mean luck? It could mean luck or fortune. What else does it mean? Mazal. Who's got it? More like blessings. Okay, blessings, good. What else? I'll give you a synonym. Our sages speak about kochavim umazalot. Kochavim umazalot. What are kochavim? Stars and constellations. Yes, a mazal is a constellation. Right? So if you have one of those apps on your phone where you can hold it up at night and you can see like the Big Dipper, you ever see those? Those are amazing. You, I think Google has one where you can like, yeah. I'm sure you can hold it up and it can tell you exactly what to look for and whatever. Of course, I always say this that, I mean, it's not, I'm not the one that, that authored this idea, but I, you know, I, I, I always marvel at the fact that we have so much light pollution in our cities, in our big cities that you look up, you almost don't see anything because we blind ourselves by our own light. It's hard to see what, what God provided for us. I remember once, this is a, just a, a, as an aside, anecdotally, there's a Jew whose name is Ron Perlman. Anybody familiar with, with a fellow named Ronald Perlman? Yes? He owns Revlon? Anyway, he has, this, he has, um, he has a custom. His custom is wherever he is in the world, he, um, he has a minion for Shabbat, wherever he is. So when he's in St. Bart's in December, he flies out nine yeshiva students from Brooklyn to make his minion. How do I know this? You can probably see where this is going. Because I helped make his minion several times. It was, he was married to Ellen Barkin. Remember Ellen Barkin? Yes. He was married to her at the time. She's a, uh, an actress. Anyway. Basically, I remember that I was living then in Brooklyn, and you know, not seeing any stars in Brooklyn. Uh, you may see a tree grow, a tree grow in Brooklyn, but stars, uh, not so much. But I remember, you know, there on the island, it was so quiet, and I looked up, and I'm like, 
being blinded by the gorgeous, gorgeous, you know, uh, um, stars. And it was amazing. I'm like, where did these go in Brooklyn? Who, who's hiding them? And you, you realize that, you know, it's, we just got too much of our own light. But anyway, mazalot or mazal, mazalot is plural. Mazal means a constellation. So listen to this. When we wish someone mazal tov, you know what it literally means? May you have a good star or constellation. Now, what does that mean? I'm glad you asked. Let's keep on jumping. Let's keep on digging into our text. You're going to love this, folks. Take a look at this piece of Talmud. This is, it, it's really beautiful. Okay, Talmudic astrology. Here we go. Text number four. This comes, here's the source, Talmud, Tractate Shabbat 156a. The Talmud discusses the, 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 um, the destiny of people born under certain constellations, under certain stars. He who is born under the constellation of the sun will be a distinguished man, will eat and drink, will eat and drink of his own, and his secrets will lie uncovered, and his secrets will lie uncovered. If a thief, he will have no success. Okay, so we have a bit of a mixed bag over there. So there's some, there some positives, but also some, uh, some drawbacks with this, uh, with this constellation. He who is born under the constellation of Venus will be wealthy and unchaste. He who is born under Mercury will, will be of a retentive memory and wise. Okay, sounds good. He who is born under the moon will be a man to suffer evil. He will build and demolish Demolish and build. He will eat and drink that which is not his, and his secrets will remain hidden. If a thief, he will be successful. He who is born under Saturn will be a man whose plans will be frustrated. Others say the opposite, that all nefarious designs against him will be frustrated. So we have a Talmudic debate regarding Saturn. He who is born under Jupiter will be a right-doing man. He who is born under Mars will be a shedder of blood. Ravashi observed, he will be a surgeon or a thief or a slaughterer or a circumciser. Either way, he's going to cause shedding of blood. That's the point. So either it could be come in a good way or come in a not so good way. A surgeon, great. Uh, slaughter for meat, sure. Why not if you eat meat? Circumciser, yeah, it's a mitzvah. A thief to resort to bloodshed, not so kosher. Next, Abraham said before God, I have looked at my constellation and found that I am not fated to beget a child. God replies, cease your planet gazing. What is your calculation? That Jupiter, the constellation you were born under, stands in the west? Eh, God says, don't worry about it. I will turn it back and place it in the east. That is the beautiful and cryptic section of Talmud that we are going to use as the source for the, the phrase Mazel Tov. So what's going on here is the Talmud is basically saying, if you know um, Mazel equals constellation, but what about the planet? Yeah, so all of those are planets, 
Yes, all of those are individual planets. Nonetheless, when we talk about a constellation, it means uh, um, the position of, of, of all the other planets relative to this dominant planet that's dominating at that time specifically. So you have one planet that's like in the lead or whatever. That's its, that's its moment, but the other planets are also like in the supporting cast. That's why we call it a constellation, even though it's primarily one planet. But the point is like this, that every planet and every constellation really has its influence. So somebody born under this planet is going to have that effect on their life. And what we see here is a number of very interesting things. So number one, what we learn from this piece of Talmud is that the stars and the planets and the constellations absolutely, absolutely have an effect on, on our lives. They absolutely impact, um, the mazel impacts us. The second lesson that we can derive from this Talmudic passage is that we are not helpless victims. We can channel the natural predispositions in a healthier direction. For example, I'll go back to the one, to the example that we had before, right? Remember, I'm going to share it one more time. Remember the Mars constellation right here in the middle of the page? So we said that if you're born under Mars, then blood is in your destiny. And then the Talmud said, Rav Ashi said, well, you still have a choice. How will you shed blood? In an evil way or for a blessing? That's where human choice comes in. So what's important to note is that although the constellation almost predestines certain elements about a person, nonetheless, we still have free choice and can channel it any way we like also, and including in a healthy direction as well. And the third point that we learn from this Talmudic passage, from the end, the, the dialogue between God and Abraham, Abraham says, God, I looked at the stars. I can't have a child. And God says, why are you looking at the stars? You want a child? I can make it happen. Oh, because your star wasn't aligned in a certain way? Who's in charge here? I'm in charge. You want, you want the planet to go to the west or from the west to the east? I'll make it happen. In other words, what God is saying is, uh, what the Talmud says elsewhere, basically, quoting this idea is, Ein mazal which means that we're not stuck under, under the constellation. We're not really stuck under the stars. Yes, the stars do have an influence, but at the same time, we believe that God is ultimately in control and can do anything. So God is not limited by the stars. The stars are just, you know, kind of a template, but then you can go from there, you can go wild. So what's, the, or God can go wild, certainly. So what do we learn from this? Again, the constellation has an effect. We can channel it through our choice and God can override it. But all of this helps explain the origins of the phrase Mazel Tov. So let's jump back into the text and let's see a beautiful teaching from Rabbi Yehuda HaChassid, Sefer Hasidim. Take a look. Text number six. When a woman is in labor, and others are outside the room in the same house, they ought to pray for mercy upon her, and that the child should be born under a good mazel. Look at that. If you're davening, if you're praying for, uh, you know, for the healthy birth of a child, what are you praying for? The mother should be healthy, the child should be healthy, and that the child should be born under a good mazel. Look at the Hebrew. If you could read the Hebrew... And the prayer for the child is that he or she should be born That's the origin of the phrase Mazal Tov. It's literally right here in the Hebrew from the 1100s Mazal Tov. 
The wish is that the child be born under the good mazel. So what do we mean when we say, when we hear about the birth of a child, we say, oh, mazel tov. Today, we mean congratulations. But you know where it came from? When, when a person said, oh, you heard uh, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, they just had a child. Mazel tov. You know what the wish was? You know, now you know what the wish was. The wish was, oh, I hope the child was born under a fortuitous a, uh, a, a blessing, a consolation, a blessing. And the truth is, it is also appropriate for other simchas, um, you know, for a coming of age ceremony like a brit milah or a bat mitzvah or a bar mitzvah. I guess it makes sense also to use the, the phrase mazel tov because we're, we're saying, we're, we're asking, we're praying, we're hoping, we're wishing that this occasion happen underneath a good mazal, a good consolation. But that's the, that's the source of it. It doesn't mean congratulations. It doesn't mean good on you, mate. It doesn't mean uh, good luck. It means, well, it kind of means good luck, actually. It means have a good fortune based on the consolation. Make sense? Yeah? Now you know. Now, by the way, if somebody asks you, so does Judaism believe in astrology? Yeah? Most of us would say, no. Astrology? No, that's like a fringe thing. It's not Judaism. If you've ever said Mazel Tov, you have evoked a sentence that channels the, um, the, some sort of recognition of astrology. So without knowing it, you're essentially an astrologist. I'm just saying. You can like now open up a hotline and do readings and everything. I'm kidding. No, don't do that. But the point is that we all wish each other Mazel Tov, and the idea is that the, sh- the stars should shine upon us. Okay, let me take a look at the chat. Um... Mazal, Makom Zman Lashon. Yes, Mazal can be an acronym for space, time, and tongue, language, conversation. You make, your, you make your own Mazal. Yes, you make your own Mazal by where you are, when you are, and what you say in that moment. What you, uh, what, yeah, Makom Zman Lashon. Beautiful. Um, Adina Malka, should you plan an event to be held? Under- yes, yes. Great question. Let me read the question before answering. Should you plan an event to be held under a good constellation? The answer is yes. There are, there are ways to plan ahead. In fact, the Talmud and Jewish law talks about certain days that are more fortuitous for certain things. So, for example, in general, Tuesdays are always a really great day. Tuesdays, why? Because we have this time together, Tuesday nights. But also, that's true, yes. Also, because in the account of creation, God said on Tuesday, the third day of creation, twice that it was good. God said twice, Vayar Kitov, and, and, and he saw that it was good. So this is the day, Shahuch Babo Kitov, that it's a double good um, expression. So, for example, if somebody has a court case, right, if somebody needs to go to court, Tuesday is a great day. Not always can we set it, but if you can, Tuesday. Maybe an elective surgery or something like that. Tuesdays are, 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 are always a good day. But there are also days, not just days of the week, there are also days of the month and days of the year. There are days that each day has its you know, kind of uh, special significance. And it's always good to look for a date and to, to make a connection and to stay positive. So that is a short answer to a really good question. The answer is essentially yes. We try to do that as much as we can. All right. Um, good. Any questions on Mazel Tov? Questions, comments? No? Okay. 
Good luck with that. No, I'm kidding. All right, so let's jump into, oh, ho, 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 ho. let's stay in the fun zone. You ready? Gefilte fish. Gefilte fish. What's with gefilte fish? You walk into a fish market. Yeah, go to Seattle. Yeah, go to Seattle. Go to the fish market. There's a fish market in Seattle, right? Yes? I was there. I'm just trying to, it was a while ago, so I think, yeah. So go to the fish market. What is it? It's Pike's Market. That's what it is, yes. And it's right by the first Starbucks. Yes, and it's right by that first Starbucks, right? Pike, yeah. I was there. It's a very small Starbucks, whatever. Anyway, the point is like this. I don't even drink coffee, but I'm like, oh, Starbucks, gotta go in. Now, um, fish. Go to Pike's Market in Seattle or wherever. Go to Nova Scotia. Why not? Because you can, right? And go try to get by a gefilte. Yeah, give me the best gefilte you have. They'll look at you like you are Meshuggah. Why? Because gefilte, spoiler alert, is not a fish. It's a type of dish, fish dish, but it's not a fish. The question that we're going to ask is right now, oh, why questions? I forgot to mention the questions. The, question, the why question now, number three is... Why do Jews eat gefilte fish on Shabbat? What's the deal with the gefilte fish? Gefilte fish is so prevalent, you can walk into pretty much any chain store in the country. Again, I have not done this. I have not gone to every chain store in the country, full disclosure, but I've gone to a lot, and I've gone to a lot like in Nowheresville. Somebody just told me they were in like the North Georgia mountains in a random, one of these chain stores, I forget the name of it, over there. And there's like a nice section, nice, nice kosher Manischewitz section with gefilte fish. You know, the, you, know, you know those stores, right? It's when you pull the gefilte fish out and the cover has a nice layer of dust on it, right? Then you know that it's, um, that you, you're the first one to buy this gefilte fish in a minute. That's, that's how you know. Just feel the layer, that layer of, uh, of dust. That's not, a du- that's not a layer of love. That's a layer of, of who would buy that except for uh, the Jew walking in. But here's the deal. Why the... Ah! Oh! Love it. Adina Malka, if, you, if you're not seeing everybody's picture, if you're just seeing me, go to uh, Brady Bunch View and look at Adina Malka, Adele Northrup. She's got the Yehuda gefilte fish. Is it the sweet recipe or the traditional recipe? Aha. Uh-huh. That's the question. No, you gotta unmute yourself. We can't hear you. Not, oh, sweet. Love it. All right, it's the sweet Hungarian. Hungarians love sweet. It's the sweet recipe of the gefilte fish. Gefilte fish is, so, is such a Jewish thing. Now, not all Jews eat gefilte fish. Jews come in many different flavors, right? Jews come with many different tastes. So not all Jews eat gefilte fish, but many Jews do. And the question is, why? So first of all, where do gefilte fish, where does gefilte fish come from? Gefilte fish is not a fish. It's a combination of fish. It's a combo fish. I hate to be the first one to break this to you, although my joke is always, how do you know which one in the, in the, in the ocean is the gefilte fish? It's the fish with the carrot on its back. Yeah, 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 that's the old joke, right? Or even better, it's Lake Gefilte. If you've ever gone fishing in Lake Gefilte, you don't even need a fishing rod. Because the water, the jelly is so thick, all you do is take a jar and you just scoop up the fish one by one and just can it and you're done. That's where the fish... No, but, but all joking aside, what is a gefilte fish? Well, what is gefilte fish? It's a bunch of different fish. For example, it is... Um, I think it's pike, carp, whitefish, and others mixed together with some, uh, some vegetables like carrots and onions and some sugar 
to make it sweet, if it's a sweet recipe, and then it's cooked. And for some reason, I don't know where the tradition started from, they throw it, yeah, it's like a combo, like Jewish sushi. And they, they throw it in a jelly for some reason, you know, in many cases. And there you go. You got your jar-gefilled fish. I will tell you, spoiler alert, or um, not spoiler alert, um, pro tip, you can buy at any of the kosher establishments here in Atlanta and, and I'm sure elsewhere, you can buy frozen loaves of gefilte fish that are a step up from the, from the jar. Now, it's going to take more work. You can't just crack it open and go to town on it. But you buy your frozen loaf, oh my, I did a session. Who was on that? Cooking with Rabbi Ari, who was on that session? We did like a four-way gefilte fish. Yeah, we did it with like a red sauce. We did, oh, and, oh. Folks, I've been experimenting. I gotta do another session of this. Cooking with Rabbi Ari. I've done the last three weeks a Moroccan gefilte fish that will knock your socks off. Moroccan gefilte fish, it's gefilte fish in a red sauce that's uh, to live for, folks, to live for. That requires a mazel tov right there for that gefilte fish. Just all sorts of good blessings and consolations. But anyway, getting back to the gefilte fish. You can buy the one from the jar. You can buy the frozen loaves. Basically, it's the raw fish with the vegetables uncooked. But it's frozen, twisted in like a paper. You either drop the, the, the whole bundle, not the plastic, the paper wrapped in the thing in, in boiling water and let it boil for like an hour and a half, drain it, open it up and serve it, or you can bake it or you can fry it. I mean, it's pretty much like the money. You can do whatever you want. Well, not anything you want with it, but there's a lot of ways to prepare it. Anyway, well, why get felt fish? Where does it come from? Two classic reasons for it. Does anybody know why get felt fish? I'm opening up to the floor. Go. Who knows why? Give me one reason why get felt fish. Where does, why did get felt fish originate? Steve. You can feed more people. Yes. Yes, gefilte fish really means, gefilte means filled, Yiddish, filled fish. Basically, it's like the meatloaf of fish. You're taking less amount of actual fish and putting more, I don't know what that is, but putting more stuff in it, putting more filler in it to spread it. If you have one fish and a big family to feed, guess what? You're not cooking the fish and serving it. You're gefiltering it. No, not gefilter, gefilte, whatever unless you're also filtering it. But anyway, you're gonna fill it up, you're gonna put some extras in it to stretch your fish. That's the classic, I would call it the socioeconomic reason for the gefilte fish, which is born essentially in the old country when times were not always great for the Jewish community and they needed to stretch the food. Give me a second reason, who's got it? Second reason for gefilte fish. Why gefilte fish? Why not? No, but better, better reason, why? Why gefilte fish? Okay, I'm going to give you a halachic reason. This is a reason based on Jewish law. You ready? The Jew Jewish law says that 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 that. Hold on one second. Yeah, Jewish law says that on Shabbat we don't separate bad from good. Like if you have a mixture of things, like things are a bit of a combo, you can't pull out what's not good from what's good. I'll give you a simple example. Watermelon. Before they were genetically modified. Remember the old school watermelon? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. It had those things, those black things in them. Kids today, they have no idea what that is even, right? Because we're pits anymore. But back in the day, yes, they had pits. 
And if you had a slice of watermelon, and who doesn't love a good slice of watermelon on a nice uh, uh, hot summer day, cool watermelon, if you have a nice watermelon with good seeds, or with, with abundant seeds, what are you doing? You're picking them out. That is not, that is not Shabbat friendly. Why? On Shabbat, it's one of the 39 categories of work. It's called borer, B-O-R-E-R, borer. Borer means choosing or selecting. We don't choose or select on Shabbat the bad from the good. Now, just to be very clear, if you had some watermelon uh, chunks sitting in a bowl with seeds at the bottom, you could pick out the chunks and eat them and leave the seeds at the bottom because you're choosing the good from the bad and eating it in the process of eating it. But you can't separate out the bad from the good, leaving only the good because then it's separating. So this comes into play also when it comes to fish and bones. Are you with me? If you're eating a white fish, you ever have like one of those white fish, like at a bris or at another simcha, like a full on, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah? Yes, like a smoked white fish. Good, all right, it's a Jewish food. Smoked white fish and all these little bones, right? So what do you do? You, you take a piece, you take a chunk, and then in your plate, you might start pulling out the bones, right? You're pulling out the bones so that you're not eating the bones. Who wants to eat the bones? So you pull out the little bones. Whether it's salmon, whether it's a whitefish, whatever. That's Shabbat, that's a no-no. You can't do that. You can only eat the good from the bad, not take out the bad from the good. So if you eat the good from the bad, what's going to happen? You might be afraid. You might, be, you might choke or whatever it is. You might get a bone in your throat. Who wants that? That's awkward. So then you might violate Shabbat. So what's the best thing to do? Prepare it and process it before Shabbat. That's where gefilte fish comes in. Gefilte fish is processed fish, already deboned and already processed and mushed up, no bones about it, and therefore it's Shabbat friendly without any selection. Are you with me on that? Yes? So it's number one, it's more, it's more economically friendly, it stretches, and number two, it's more Shabbat friendly. These are the two reasons why gefilte fish became a thing on Shabbat. But why fish in the first place? Why do we eat fish on Shabbat? I'm glad you asked. Let's take a look once again at the screen. I'm going to share with you the text of our uh, third question. Talmud, Tractate Shabbat, discusses what to eat on Shabbat. Just as, a, uh, as an introduction, there's a mitzvah to enjoy your Shabbat experience, to have pleasure on Shabbat. So the Talmud asks, how should one have pleasure on Shabbat? How do you enjoy Shabbat? So here the rabbis weigh in on this. Rav Yehuda, son of Rav Shmuel Bar Shilat, said in Rav's name, How do you have pleasure in Shabbat? Easy, with a dish of beets, large fish, and heads of garlic. Easy peasy, beets, fish, and garlic. What could be better? Rav Bar Ashi said in Rav's name, So again, just to be clear, we have two rabbis that each quoted Rav. Rav Yehuda, son of Rav Shmuel Bar Shilat, said in the name of Rav Rav, and Rav Chia Bar Ashi said in Rav's name. So what did Rav actually say? We have two traditions. So this second tradition was, even something small, if it is prepared in honor of Shabbat, it satisfied the obligation to take delight. What is something small? Rav Papa said, a pie of fish hash. That means kind of mushed fish. So again, the Talmud, Tractate Shabbat 118b, in discussing what to eat, sorry, in discussing how to enjoy the Shabbat experience, focuses on the food, and both opinions of the Talmud talk about fish specifically, not necessarily meat, not challah, not other things. How do you enjoy Shabbat? Fish. So there's a Jewish custom specifically to have fish on Shabbat. 
And once we have fish, we want to make sure, well, practically it was good to stretch it. And halachically, Jew, from a Jewish legal perspective, it's good to have no bones in your fish dish. Hence, gefilte fish was born for those two reasons and in order to honor Shabbat. There's one more element about fish that I wanted to share with you. Fish is considered to be the most spiritual of the creatures. Why? Because when it comes to preparing kosher food, you know, animals, land animals, like a cow or whatever, to get kosher meat, it's a very complicated process. You have to slaughter it in a certain way and you have to check the animal if it's healthy. And then even if it is, even if, even if everything checks out, there's still major parts of the animal that are not kosher. You can't eat the entire animal. You know, um, what is it called? The rump roast? Yes, rump roast is not kosher because it comes from the hind part of the animal. And there's a, um, there's a part of the animal that's off limits back there, the gidhanasha, the, um, how would you translate that? The sciatic, uh, yeah, sciatic nerve or whatever it is, sciatic nerve that runs through the hind quarters of the animal. And, you know, we're not necessarily so expert to cut exactly the exact place out. And there are also certain forbidden fats that are, well, forbidden because they're called forbidden fats in Torah law. So essentially there's certain like major parts of a kosher animal that we, we totally don't even eat. So, and the same thing is true with chicken. Even chicken poultry, you know, you, you have to slaughter it. And, and, and there's certain parts of the poultry that we don't eat. Certain parts of, you know, the blood or whatever it is, we, we salt it so that we don't eat, eat the blood. So it's not 100% kosher. In other words, it's not kosher in its entirety. Fish is different. The entire, if it's a kosher fish, fins and scales, the whole thing is kosher. The whole deal is kosher. You don't have to slaughter it. You don't have to prepare it in a specific way. The whole thing is kosher. It represents on a food Biological, biological food level represents purity. So on Shabbat, which is a day of purity, what better thing to eat? You could eat meat, you could eat poultry, but definitely, definitely what's the holiest thing to eat on the holiest day of the week is fish. Also, one more mystical idea, mystical teaching. This is what Kabbalah says. Fish are unique in that they swim in their source of life. Let me explain. Um, fish require the water to, to live and breathe. And they're completely submerged in their, in their, essentially their source of life. We land mammals or creatures, we feel disconnected sometimes from our source. We feel autonomous. But a fish, I don't know if a fish knows, but it should know by now. A fish should know at least that the moment it's out of the water, it's done. We think, no, 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 we got this. We're on our own. But fish know the truth. They're more spiritually attuned. This is what Kabbalah says. Fish inherently are more spiritually attuned to their creator, to their source, submerged in their source of life as it were, and it's pure, and it's a, and it's a delicacy. It's a way to enjoy Shabbat. Therefore, we make a point to eat fish. And when we're eating fish, no bones, gefilte. That's the tradition that many, many have. Make sense about the fish? Yes? Any questions about gefilte fish? Rabbi, I wanted yeah. to tell you this did have a dusty, I don't know if you can see this, uh, it did have ah. a dusty lid. That's why they put it in fail. You got the clearance version. You got the clearance version gefilte fish. Yeah. Hopefully the expiration date is still valid. Hopefully it's not circa 1974. Uh, no, I'm kidding. But gefilte fish, I'm pretty sure it could last a while. Um, 
Don't try. Hey, listen, I'm not giving you know health advice. You know FDA. I'm I'm st- I'm waiting out of that. But enjoy. But have own. I would eat it. You know before too long. Yes. A question. Um, well, um, why is it that um, when we do tashlich, we're supposed to do it at a body of water where there are fish? Now we're not feeding the fish, but we're doing it at a body of water where there are fish. Excellent question. I love that question. Rosh Hashanah is coming up, and on Rosh Hashanah, we have a tradition to go to a body of water and symbolically cast away our sins to, to a body of water that has fish. Why fish? So listen to this, and maybe you know this, but it's a, it's a, great, it's a great idea, beautiful idea. Fish always have their eyes open. Fish, I, don't, I mean, I don't believe fish, I don't believe, is this correct? Fish do not have eyelids? Okay. So fish are always, are always eyes open. And on Rosh Hashanah, we ask that God always be watching us for good. Not like some weird, creepy stalker situation. No, no, no. But that God always be mindful of us and know what we need and anticipate our our needs and hook us up with whatever we need this year. And so as we go to a body of water to, you know, based on the prophet, I think it's uh, Micha, uh, to symbolically cast away our sins. So we go to a place with fish to... um, uh, to, to symbolize good things. Oh, oh, there's a few more things. Also, fish multiply very quickly. Fish um, uh, uh, biologically reproduce very quickly. And the idea here is to... Um, Jerry, I love the lion in the background. That's fantastic. You're not lying over there. Um, so we want to also that our good deeds should, should multiply and our blessings should multiply. The idea of multiplying, the idea of, of blessing. Also, fish... Because their eyes are always open, you can't pull a fast one. No eye in hara, no evil eye when it comes to fish. So we ask also, we pray that this year, no negative vibes, no, no evil eye for us. By the way, if you're wondering what's the deal with the evil eye, maybe next week we'll get into it. It's a really, really um, uh, great conversation about the, uh, the eye in hara, the evil eye. Okay, let's, let's stay with food. Um, let's stick with the food category, Alex, for 400 Little Jeopardy reference. Okay, so what's the deal? What's the deal with the chalant? Now, who knows what chalant is? Raise of hand. Chalant. Chalant, chalant, chalant. Chalant is the wonderful Shabbat day stew that many people enjoy on, you guessed it, Shabbat day for lunch or maybe a late lunch, whatever it is. So what you do is, here's how, it, here's how it typically is done. Well, I mean, at least today, many people use a crock pot, an electric crock pot. Welcome to, uh, you know, the technology, whatever. It's wonderful. You don't have to put anything on the stove or the fire. You plug it in. You're good to go. And you put it up before Shabbat. You put all the ingredients in, and it stays hot. Back in the day, they would leave a fire on, and uh, they would put the, again, the food in goes, goes in Friday before Shabbat. We don't cook on Shabbat. And it stays on. And then Shabbat day, you have hot food. Um, in addition to that, back in the day even earlier, Jews, Jew, in Jewish communities, it's interesting, it's well documented, Jews used to walk over to the local bakery. The bakery used to keep their ovens on, on the entire Shabbat. And the community, everyone would come with their own pot. They would put, before Shabbat, they would load up this communal oven. And then after services, Shabbat day, everyone would come and take their pot and go home. 
And that's what they would, they would have lunch because people didn't necessarily have their own ovens or their own, or even if they had their own ovens, it was a complicated procedure. It wasn't something they necessarily, it was safer. They wanted to have on 24-7, so, you know, over Shabbat. So they had, today, by the way, oh, today with ovens, are you kidding me? You can buy an oven with Shabbat mode. You know that, right? Ovens have Shabbat mode. My oven has Shabbat mode. My, I don't have to like, it goes to shul for me also. I don't even have, no, I'm kidding about that part. No, but sh- the oven has Shabbat mode. It's like you program it when it goes on, when it goes off. You, when you open up the door, the lights don't go on. It's unbelievable. It's fantastic. It even says the Kiddush. Um, again, that was a joke. But it does have Shabbat mode to separate fact from fiction. Getting back to the point, what's the reason for the challenge? So one could say, well, it's simply you want to have you want to have hot food on Shabbat, but it's even deeper than that. There's a beautiful um, Jewish legal reason, halachic reason for this, and it all goes back to the Torah's um, to the mitzvah. The Torah says, "Do not light a fire on Shabbat," and there was a major conversation about what that means. I'm going to share my screen with you, and. Oh, there we go. All right. Now we got cooperation. Here we go. Okay. Take a look. All right. Still fish. We're past fish. Okay. Here we go. Text number 11. Look at this verse from Exodus 35. It says, I'm going to read it in English. You shall not cause fire to burn in any of your dwelling places on the day of Shabbat. All right. Straightforward. You shall not cause fire to burn in any of your dwelling places on the day of Shabbat. Okay? No fire on Shabbat. Here's the question. You ready? The question is, does this mean that you can't kindle fire on Shabbat? Or does it go a step further to mean that you can't have any fire even burning on Shabbat, even if it was lit before Shabbat? That's the question. So let me explain what was going on 2,000 years ago. The rabbis, or more, the rabbis said, based on their tradition and understanding this verse, going all the way back to Moses, that's what we call the oral tradition, the, the way that we understand how to understand the Torah. The tradition that the rabbis had was that when the Torah says no fire on Shabbat, what it means is don't create fire on Shabbat, but... If you lit it before Shabbat, it could still remain burning as long as it remains burning. That's actually why, one of the reasons why we light Shabbat candles, right? Everyone knows Shabbat candles. Why? Because the rabbi said, we want to make sure that everybody knows that you are allowed to have fire lit on Shabbat. Don't light it on Shabbat, but it can remain lit on Shabbat. So we light the candles 18 minutes before sunset. Friday, Friday afternoon, late afternoon, and it remains lit throughout our Shabbat meal. Yes? But there, were, there was a breakaway, a splinter group called the Tzedukim, the Sadducees. And the Tzedukim, or the Baitusim, the Bothusians, I'm not sure which one, but basically a, spl- a splinter group who said, we don't believe in any tradition from Moses. Go prove that you have a tradition from Moses. Where, where is it written? We don't believe it. We choose not to believe it. They rejected, again, what we call the oral tradition. And they said, we're going to go by what we see written in the text. The Torah says no fire, no fire, no monkey business, no fooling around. They believed, again, this was their own 
breakaway interpretation. They were literalists, which sometimes, you know, doesn't make any sense. Nonetheless, very small group, they believed that, they maintained that the way they understood Torah was that you can't have fire at all on Shabbat. So if you lit candles before Shabbat, before Shabbat, you got to put them out. Food cannot remain on a fire on Shabbat. You got to turn off the fire. All fires have to be eliminated before Shabbat. Guess what? Guess what the Friday night meal looked like? Help me out here. Unmute yourself. Tell me what the Friday night Shabbat meal looked like in, the, uh, in, in, in these homes of the breakaway groups. Super dark. Remember, no electricity, no fire, garnished, glow sticks. That's it. Glow sticks from the dollar store. You know, the little halo things and the one. I'm kidding. I don't know. That no fire, no nothing, garnished. Talk about an enjoyable Shabbat. No hot food. No fire, no hot food. You can't keep food in the fire, nothing. I mean, maybe if you put it on, if you turned it off right before Shabbat, it could still remain hot a little bit. I don't know how they did it. But bottom line is, I mean, coldish food and, um, and, and, and no, and no, and no, and no um, light on Friday night, let alone Shabbat day. Although Shabbat day, you don't need the light, but you don't have hot food. The rabbis, the normative, I mean, when I say normative, I mean like the mainstream, vast, vast, vast majority of rabbis believed, who believed, who, who had the tradition and believed in the tradition, they said that that's simply not true. The Torah does not say don't have any fire. The Torah says don't create fire, don't initiate fire, as we read in the verse. So therefore, to prove the point or to make, the, to, to make sure to um, emphasize the point, the rabbis initiated Shabbat candle lighting so that you have the candles lit on Shabbat and they remain, you light them before, but they remain lit on Shabbat. Number one and number two, the idea of hot food on Shabbat day. Because the splinter groups had no hot food Shabbat day. The rabbis said you could have hot food on Shabbat and because of that we make a point to specifically have food on Shabbat to demonstrate that we don't believe in that splinter group. So we have to almost demonstrate, not have to, but we, we seek to almost demonstrate that we could have hot food. And how do we have hot food? We don't cook on Shabbat. The food went up Friday afternoon, but it remained in the fire, and the fire was lit. We didn't touch it. We didn't touch it. It remained on its own, but that's kosher. Until we wanted to serve it, we took it off, and then we served it. And that's what we call chalant. Um, chalant, by the way, I did, a, again, I did a, a, a different session of cooking with Rabbi Ari where I did a Texas Hold'em chalant. Remember that? The text, yeah. I did a Texas chalant. Wow. You got, get your spurs ready because that's a, it's a real deal. I actually made it um, two weeks ago. Last week, last Friday night, I made something that I call chugle. Chugle. Have I told you guys about chugle? I have. Some of you I've told about chugle. chugle you're wondering what's chugle? I never heard of chugle. You ready? Chalant and kugel mashup. Yes, you heard me right. Chalant kugel mashup. Let me explain. Mashup. Let me explain. I take a cr my crock pot. I'm so tempted to take you to my kitchen right now, but okay, I'm gonna stay here in this my son's bedroom. So, um, I take my crock pot. I put in like meat at the bottom, and then I take a full pan, double pan batter of potato kugel. Now, if you've had my potato kugel, you know that that's like next, I, I don't like to boast, but my potato kugel, I'm very confident talking about my potato kugel. It's fantastic. I take my entire potato kugel, like a double, like a double pan, like double tray, 
pour it over the meat. Cover the crock pot. I got one of these things that snaps it in place. Turn it on low. 25 hours, 24 hours later, whatever, that thing. I wake up Shabbos morning. Remember those cartoons where the guy floats through the air with the, you know what I'm talking about, right? With the aroma, but the, the character actually floats through the air. That's what happens. I got some bruises. No, I'm kidding. Anyway, the point is that, uh, Adina, I'll get to you in a second, Adina Malka. The point is that why do we have chalant? Number one, because it tastes good. Number two, because we can have hot food on Shabbat. And number three, to demonstrate that the breakaway group was wrong. Or, we, or at least to demonstrate that we're not agreeing with that splinter group. We believe that fire can remain lit as long as it was lit before Shabbat. As long as you have the food on before Shabbat, leave it. As long as you lit the candles before Shabbat, leave it. You don't have to, you don't have to extinguish it or, or turn it off. Um, one thing to, 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 to make sure to mention, the reason why chalent works so well is because of the liquid. Please. This is my personal request. Do not put something dry or whatever without a lot of liquid into a crock pot for 25 hours because you're going to end up with smoke, God forbid, and, and, and even worse, right? Make sure that whatever you're cooking has sufficient liquid so that even if it boils and boils and boils or whatever, it slow cooks and you're remaining with something that's not going to cause a fire because <laughs> there's no mitzvah to make a fire on Shabbat. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to have hot food and enjoy Shabbat. Makes sense? I want to share some text with you so that you see that I didn't make all this stuff up. Um, okay, so we spoke about this. Oh, no, actually, I did. Well, no, I didn't make it up, but I don't know if we have text for it. No. No, okay, so... You'll have to take my word for it. All right, next. Let us look at, um, yeah, go ahead. What about the language? Uh, it says you shall not, I think, burn fire in your dwellings on Shabbat. How yeah. does the commentary Terry, uh, treat the language in your dwellings? It means in, in the Jewish communities and where you live. It just means like in your, in your, in your spaces. Now, there might be a more specific, a more technical um, explanation of that phrase. I, I, I don't have, I don't have a, a more specific, I'm sure there's more meaning to it. I don't have, you know, anything on the top of my head to, you know, to, to, to share right now. I would have to look it up in the commentaries. Um, but essentially, in general, it just means, you know, in, in your spaces, communities, in your homes, we don't, we don't kindle fire. But if you look at the translation here, you shall not cause fire to burn. It doesn't say you shall not have fire burning. It's the creation of fire on Shabbat that is, uh, that is the problem. But if it's already burning, you let it go. By the way, hold on. Along these lines, um, I've been asked before, you know, can you, leave a, um, can you leave a television on? You know, can you leave a radio on? Shabbat. From before Shabbat. Because I'm not turning anything on. I'm not touching anything. I'm not doing any electronics. It's, it's remaining on. Right? It's like the fire. It's like, I'm not touching it. The fact that college football game is going to come on at a certain point in time on that channel. Listen, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. It's like Shabbat candles. I, I did it before. I didn't do it on Shabbat. Technically, you, you know, it's not a violation. But, 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 it's not necessarily in the spirit of Shabbat. So eating, chalant, spirit of Shabbat. Watching college football, again, some would argue that it's the holiest experience. But traditionally, it is... Not, uh, no, I, I know, listen, I get it, it's the South, you know, SEC, I get it, trust me, I'm right there, I, 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 I'm, I'm right with everybody. 
But nonetheless, it's not, it, that would be more about the spirit of Shabbat, which is you know, somewhat of an intangible as opposed to a hard and fast rule. And so therefore, we, we wouldn't necessarily run to do that. But I should mention along these lines, people use timers all the time for Shabbat, um, for Shabbat lights. So, you know, if it's pre-programmed before Shabbat, you're not doing anything, it's rolling on its own. I've been asked the question of, what about Alexa? Can you say, hey, Alexa, uh, turn on the light? I didn't do it. I'm just, I'm just, ah, Alexa's my friend. I don't know. Oh, oh that thing. Oh, who knew it was there? Again, it's, it still wouldn't be so, so kosher because it's, you know, we're still controlling it through our voice. Even if it's not action, it's still voice, which is a little bit of action. So we try to avoid actually triggering anything on Shabbat. If it's before Shabbat, less of a problem, as long as it's in the Shabbat spirit. Make sense? Okay. What about uh, Fitbit? Fitbit, excellent question. So anything that we are, it's a really good, you know, the question first came up back in the day with mechanical, uh, sorry, with um, automatic watches, right? Automatic watches that, you know, that, that, um, that wind due to the, um, do the, move, the movement of, of your wrist, right? So we're not supposed to wind a watch on Shabbat. Why? Because it's creating, I, I don't know the tech, listen, a lot, of, a lot of halacha has to do with the science of it and the technology. So you have to know both the law, the Jewish law, and also the science and technology. I don't really know the inner workings, the mechanics of, of a watch. I just don't. I just, you know, I have a watch. I don't really know how, uh, how, how all the mechanisms work, but I do know that on Shabbos, it's pretty much universal. We don't wind the watch, but the automatic watch, which is basically, you know, directly or indirectly winding it, we try to avoid also. And I think the same thing would be for something like a Fitbit that is monitoring our movement, you know, counting steps and all that stuff. That would be something to consider avoiding because we don't want to necessarily trigger that on Shabbat. Now, I mean, this would also affect, you know, like an Apple Watch and, and all those things. Anything that's, that's a little bit more, you know, if it's just like the watch that I have is pretty much a, you know, there's a battery in there. But, but when I, you know, moving it or whatever, it's not changing anything. It's not, you know, it's not winding it. It's not calculating anything. It's just, it's already moving. That's a little bit more Shabbat friendly. Um, but something that movement or your actions are creating something or changing something, that would be a little bit more, you know, we should, we should consider trying to avoid that on Shabbat a little bit more based on, on, on kind of creating something through our movements. Does that make sense? Okay. Anyway, something to think about. All right, next, let's go to, I'm going to skip the next question. Oh, ho, 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 I love this. Let's do this. All right, here we go. We're going to skip question number five and go to question number six. This is a great question. Why does Jewish law recognize matrilineal descent? Rabbi, I'm sorry, can I ask? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Actually, the question five was very interesting to me. I just had one I thought I'd fit with that. I have a question. So since I've been in the South, yeah. I get a lot of people that say to me, you know, have a blessed day. Yeah. And I don't know how to feel about that because I feel like there's, you know, they're saying have a Catholic day. I don't, you know. I don't know. I wouldn't, I, I mean, I personally wouldn't, um, again, I can't tell you how to feel. I personally, okay, I, I'll say this. When people express, you know, positive things and, you know, even religious things, to me, it personally, to me, it doesn't bother me 
at all. On the contrary, you know, the fact that somebody is, is evoking something spiritual or godly or whatever it is, that's great. It's, it's great that they have that connection. You know, if somebody says to me, you know, hey, let me teach you about, uh, you know, this, that, or the other, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll probably excuse myself and, or, you know, whatever, or keep the conversation very brief, you know, because there's no point to really get into a back and forth, you know, say about, you know, whose religion is better or worse. But, but somebody expressing a positive blessing and a good wish, I don't have a problem. You know, even in December time, if somebody says to me, you know, Merry Christmas, I don't get offended because, you know, it's, they're expressing the, the wish of the holiday season. You know, I might say happy holidays or, you know, I might say, you know, hey, you know, I celebrate Hanukkah and, and, and I wish you a, a good holiday too. But I, I don't, I, personally, I don't, I don't get offended. But this question that, we, that we're skipping, because I really want to get to the one about matrilineal descent. This question is about, you know, um, fearing God versus loving God. And really the upshot of it, like the 30-second version is, yeah, love is great, but you also need boundaries in any relationship. To love is great, but love doesn't preclude me from loving, you know, someone else. A person could love their spouse and 10 other people, and that's not necessarily a good thing, right? That's, that's, that's happened before where people love their spouse, but also love a few others on the side. So love is not enough. It's also, we also have to have boundaries. And Fear may be a harsh term, but on respect, whether it's for God or in any relationship, that's a necessary ingredient. So that's essentially question number five. Let's move on to question number six. Oops, I went too far. Um, yeah, here we go. Why does Jewish law recognize matrilineal descent as the deciding factor for Jewish identity? And essentially the question is, um, tradition, traditional Jewish law states that the Jewish identity follows the mother, not the father. So if a, father's, if a father is not Jewish, but the mother is Jewish, the child is 100% Jewish because it goes by the mother. The question, that's, that's the traditional um, tradition that we have in Judaism. It goes by the mother. The question is, why? Why does it go by the mother? What's, what's specific to the mother? So I want to quote to you This is from Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg, text 17. Here we have multiple rationales to explain it. Here we go. According to Torah law, a child's Jewishness, Jewishness depends on his or her mother. The first thing he says is, we do not know the reasons for the Torah's laws. It's what Torah says, that's it. But... That being said, let's explain. Some offer a biological-based rationale that the mother is more involved in the creation of a child and the formation of its body and soul. That's one. Number two, some offer a nurture-based rationale that a mother's consistent influence is more decisive in shaping her children. Number three, others suggest a practical rationale that we know indisputably the identity of one's mother. I love this text because it really, it, it runs the full spectrum, the full gamut of rationales for the matrilineal descent. The first point is, we don't really know. The Torah says, that's it. So it's Jewish law. It is what it is. But if we had to give our best guess, we could have come up with three different answers. Number one is nature. Number two is nurture. And number three is certainty. Nature. The nature of a child is primarily influenced by the mother. You should know 
that this differed starkly from ancient philosophers who believed that the mother, listen to this, ancient, I'm going to quote to you, I have in my notes, these are my notes, I have in my notes a quote from the Greek philosopher uh, Aeschylus, Aeschylus, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, Gesundheit, anyway, he said like this, the woman, listen to this, it's terrible, the woman you call the mother of the child is not the parent, she she is merely the nurse of the seed that was sown inside of her. You hear that? Wow. That's an ancient perspective. I mean, not a good ancient perspective, but that's this Greek philosopher who says, oh, no, 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 the mother doesn't have a role. It's the father, right? Because he gives the seed, so the father is creating the child. The mother is just kind of, you know, holding on, you know, kind of creating the space. Judaism fundamentally rejects that. Judaism believes, no, the father, if anything, the father's contribution is the smaller contribution. The, the, the genetics, the development, the, 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 the biology of the child is primarily influenced by the mother more than the father. That's according to Judaism. So, nature. Then you have nurture. Once the child is born, again, this is what Judaism states. Uh, Rabbi Weinberg, just, we just read that in text 17. Um, it's the, again, your mileage may vary, every family is different, but a mother has a very, very strong and powerful influence on her children. One might argue, as he does, even more than a father, or certainly in a different way. And that, again, forges the core identity of the child. So, the identity, biologically, nature, mother. Nurture, mother. And the third point is the certainty factor. Sometimes you don't know who the father is. So how do you know if the child, if it went by the father, how would you know who the, you, you wouldn't always know if the child was Jewish. But you always know who the mother is. I, I mean, it's, it's, the mother's the mother. The mother's the one who gave birth. So it's always clearly identifiable <coughs> if the child is Jewish. Again, these are rationales. Are they the reason? He says, no, it's the Torah says it. But are they some reasons? Could they be a reason? Sure. Can, and and I'll, I'll let you choose which one you prefer. But either way, this is, uh, this is some of what's stated. Okay, let's move on because I want to cover a few. Okay, let's do it quickly, a few more. Um, you may have wondered this. Okay, hold on. Before I share my screen with you, raise of hand, raise of hand. Anybody watch um, Stissel? Stissel? Netflix Stissel? No. Anybody watch Unorthodox? Unorthodox? Okay. Um, you notice the clothing? Yes? Yes? What's up with that? Right? Hold on. <laughs> I may wear a thing or throwback thing or two also sometimes on Shabbat and holidays. But what's with the old-fashioned clothing? What is this, 1700s Poland? Like, what, what, what styles have evolved. Now, by the way, what's, what's amazing about styles and fashion is that, you know, what's old is new again. So, you know, things come back and, like, who knows? Maybe Hasidic Williamsburg is back in style. I don't know. I haven't seen the runways lately. It's been a while. It's been a minute. The point is that... Many people wonder, like, what's with the old-fashioned, you know, the black and white garb? It's like, you know, there's color. We figured out color film. Like, you know, you, we can, what about splashes of color? Because it's kind of it's black and white. So what's the deal with that? So I want to share with you a perspective. You may have noticed this in Williamsburg and Borough Park and Meir Sha'arim and in B'nai Brak and Israel. Okay, so what's the deal? Let me share my screen with you once again. And we're going to do... Text. Oh, wait, hold on. Do I even have a text here? No. Okay. Scratch that. I'm just going to share with you outside. Okay. 
Simple, not simple, but, but basic explanation is there's a verse in Leviticus. The verse in Leviticus says the following. This I'm going to give you um, chapter verse. Leviticus 20, verse 23. It says, listen to this, you shall not walk in the manner of the nations. In other words, don't follow the trends of the nations, but rather stick to the Jewish way of being. There were many rabbis who lived in Europe in the times of the Enlightenment, when things were getting progressive, who felt that the modern ethos and styles and, 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 and philosophies would harm the core Jewish community and core Jewish values and adherence to Torah and mitzvot. And therefore, they pushed back very strongly against any um, adoption of modern, what was then modern, secular um, culture on any different level, whether it's slang or whether it's ideologies, philosophies and books, or whether it's clothing and other trends, you know, or music. They, there was a lot of pushback in order to preserve the integrity of the Jewish communities. And I would say like this, that as, you know, some of those communities and, and you know, the more insular, the more they, they put up the walls and the more they try to keep that away. And as they came to America, New York or to Israel, um, some of those communities kept that. So you have some garb, some old school Hasidic garb that's all about not getting swept up into, you know, the... Uh, the what I would say is like trying to stave off assimilation, if you will, and and secular culture. And again, you know, it's 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 adhering to tradition. It really comes down to honestly tradition, tradition. You know, and and although it's not like Moses' tradition, because Moses didn't wear didn't wear that. You know, it's like from the 1700s or whatever it is. But nonetheless, you know, some of these communities kind of froze time, if you will, to kind of hold on to their to their way of being. And in general, you know what, whatever it is. There, there should be a Jewish way of, of dressing, and we do have a, a, um, a, you know, a wardrobe. We have tzitzit, we have the kippah, we have you know, the talit, whatever. There are certain things that, that, that we wear, certainly when in synagogue. And the point is that there's you know, clothes help us identify with who we are and, uh, and, and, and maintain a certain pride. I want to do one more question. The question of the chicken and the egg. You know the famous philosophical question about the chicken and the egg? It goes like this. Why is the chicken fleshik and the egg parv? That's, no, that's not your question? Okay, that, well, that's my question. That's the classic question. Chicken is fleshik, which means it has the status of meat. But the egg of a chicken is parv. Let me give you a scenario. According to um, the laws of kosher, based on the rabbinic law, which we'll get to in a second, um, chicken should not be eaten with dairy products. But the eggs of a chicken could be eaten with dairy, or it could be eaten with, with meat. It's neutral, so it can go either way. Why? If the chicken itself has a meat status, then why does the egg that comes from the chicken not have the same status? I'm gonna give you the very short answer. By biblical law, chicken is not meat. Meat is meat, chicken is not meat. So why does chicken today rabbinically have the status of meat that we don't eat it with milk? Very simple. The rabbi said not everybody knows that chicken is not meat. What I mean by that is, you know, people see, uh, you know, eating chicken, people, people see people eating chicken, and they think, oh yeah, chicken meat, it's meat. And if you have a chicken parm, somebody might say, ah, so you're allowed to have 
meat and milk together. I guess when the Torah says don't cook a kid in its, its mother's milk, it only means don't cook them together, but you're allowed to eat them together because I see this guy, I see this rabbi eating chicken and milk together because the person doesn't differentiate between chicken and, and meat. Therefore, the rabbi said, because people don't always differentiate, therefore, we uh, rabbinically, we're going to say that they have the same law. The chicken should have the same law as the meat. Because, again, just to be clear, not that the rabbis didn't know the difference between chicken and meat. The rabbis knew very well, but the rabbis felt that people wouldn't be precise, the community wouldn't be so clear as to the distinction, and therefore think if you're doing chicken and milk, you can also do meat and milk, and therefore they said, you know what, we're lumping chicken, rabbinically, chicken together with meat. But the concern was only about the chicken meat that looked or could be construed as meat, but the egg, cows don't have, don't, at least don't lay eggs that can be scrambled like that. So there's no concern that anybody's going to confuse the egg with meat. Are you with me on that? So the chicken itself, the rabbi said, should have the status of meat. But the eggs were never a concern. Adina Malka, I see you shaking your head no. Jump in. Oh, I, don't, oh, I, don't, I don't understand if the chicken isn't meat. What is it? It's the chicken of the sea. I'm sorry, it's the chicken of the land. <laughs> no, what is if it's not meat? Exactly. You're, that you're saying why the rabbis made it meat. Because of you. Because of you. No, I'm kidding. I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers. No, but because people call chicken meat, the rabbi said that we're going to put meat, chicken in the same category. But it's not. It's not beef. It's not beef. Right? It's not a land animal. So when the Torah says no milk and meat, the meat that the Torah forbids is a gedi, which is a, um, um, uh, well, gedi, the kid goat in its mother's milk. So it means like a land, a land um, animal meat. But since, again, since people will call, as, you, as we just had a back and forth, since people will, will imagine chicken also being meat, the rabbi said... We're not taking our chances. We're going to make it the same law rabbinically. Biblically, it's fine, but rabbinically, we're going to make it the status of meat, but they never did that with the eggs because who's going to make a mistake about the eggs? If somebody has eggs with some cheese in it, yeah, you make an omelet and you put a little melted mozzarella or feta or whatever it is, no one's going to say, aha, now I can have a cheeseburger. Well, no one would ever make that jump. But if you have chicken with milk, that was the concern. So the rabbis never made a legislation regarding the eggs. So we have this curious condition or curious um, reality where the chicken itself today rabbinically has the status of fleshic meat, but the eggs remain neutral. Make sense? The eggs, like Switzerland, remain neutral status. I don't know if that's true, if Switzerland remain neutral. I'm going to leave that to the historians, and I'm, I'm going to back out of that a little, uh, little um, phrase. Okay, that is, I, so yeah, we're, we're out of time. That was the last question of the, I think, of, this, of the class. That takes us to the end of the fifth session. I want to leave you with a few points that I want to, um, you know, I want to reiterate a few a few lessons from the the seven or eight questions that we covered. Number one, regarding the calendar and the holidays, stability is good, but so is excitement. We have to have both. Number two, the stars have messages, but ultimately God is in control. And finally, what we learned today was that traditional Jewish foods 
whether it's gefilte fish or chalent or fish or even eggs, right? They have a lot to tell us about Jewish culture, spirituality, and of course, Jewish law. So that is it for today. Next week, same bad time, same bad channel. We have our exciting conclusion to the course, lesson number six. And next week, we are going to explore um, anti-Semitism, Jewish adulthood, invisible Passover guests, the missing Moses, the caper of the missing Moses, or the missing Moses caper, and much, much more. So join me then. Any questions before we sign out? Rabbi. Ray. Rabbi, I wanted to say one thing. Um, you know my son and you know my grandson, AJ. They both wear black and white every day. And I think there's nothing nicer than a crisp white shirt and a black suit and a black hat. And I'm very proud of them both. Yes. Yes. I, I, um, I think it's classy. I think it's traditional. And I think there's a beautiful, beautiful sense of identity and pride. And remember what I said before. This was a way of, of communities to push back against what they felt were the walls of modernity collapsing in on the community and threatening to completely you know, wipe all Jewish uniqueness out. This was a way to preserve it. And even till today... You can get a nice suit, you can get a nice uh, hat, you can get a, a nice garb and, uh, and maintain that identity. And you know what? There are a lot of people that watch Dissel and find the characters to be pleasant on the eyes. So that's all I'll say. Anyway, good to see you all tonight. Um, see you next week. Stay well, stay safe. Oh, quick point. Don't forget, next Thursday night, the 10th, join us for our incredibly unique virtual gala dinner. Dinner brought to your home. Not, the dinner's not virtual. That would be awkward. Real dinner delivered to your home with a virtual program with stars from South Africa and London and America live on the program. It's in support of uh, Jewish education here in Atlanta and beyond. Please join me in townjewishacademy.org slash gala for the details. Thank you all and, uh, and have a wonderful evening. See you guys. Take care, all. Bye.